This is an ABC podcast. China is now the second biggest owner of Australian farms, prompting renewed calls from some in the National Party for the federal government to introduce tougher foreign ownership rules. That's despite the overall investment in local farms falling. China's stake in Australia's agricultural land has skyrocketed from 1.5 million hectares to almost 14.5 million. And it's something I think we must keep a close eye on because this is about food security in the decades ahead. For decades, there has been an ongoing anxiety about the foreign ownership of Australian farming land. A fear that family farms are being bought up by overseas money and that we're losing control over our best agricultural land. As a nation, we have a great affection for our farmers and the family farm. But rural Australia is changing and the family farm isn't quite what it was in the 1950s and 60s. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision on RN. Farming had a very different beginning in Australia from other colonial societies. It wasn't rugged individuals working small holdings, but rather a small elite backed by money from the UK. Bill Pritchard is the Professor of Human Geography at the University of Sydney. I think the starting point for agriculture in Australia, in terms of white settler Australia at least, is that Australia was different to the other settler states, either in Africa or the Americas, because Europeans came here after the Industrial Revolution. So what that meant was in other parts of the world, when Europeans came and settled those continents, smallholders, small peasant farmers populated the landscape. But in Australia, what happened was as soon as the farm frontier started to expand out of the Sydney basin, it was hooked into British export markets almost from day one. So what you had was large amounts of initially British capital coming in, funding large landholders who took land, as we know often without, or typically without the permission of Indigenous people, but that became the basis for large-scale landholding sort of spreading westwards from the eastern seaboard. So the fact that we've never really had a peasant or a smallholder agriculture in Australia is, I think, the starting point for understanding the farm sector across our country. These large landholders or squatters were supported by the political system of the day and they were able to work their vast holdings with an almost endless supply of cheap labour. John Quiggan is Professor of Economics at the University of Queensland. While we had the convict system, they could get convicts assigned to work for them on their farms, so that was a source of cheap labour and, of course, competition with free settlers. And we originally, of course, at first had direct rule by British-appointed governors who naturally were from the same social class as the squatters. A lot of the big squatters, like MacArthur, for example, came out as military officers. And then when we got some degree of self-government, it was typically on a restricted franchise. And, and so the issue of closer settlement was a huge issue through the 19th century. By the latter half of the 19th century, however, the power of the squatters began to be challenged. The power of the squatocracy was seen to be not necessarily consistent with the way Australia wanted to progress, and so there was a political motivation in the colonial parliaments of the time to break up the squatocracy, or at least as new land came on the market, to allocate that to smallholders. By the late 19th century, the fight over land, over access to land, became one of the dominant 
themes in colonial politics. Marilyn Lake, Professorial Fellow at the University of Melbourne. That is the conflict between squatters who had occupied large areas of land, often paying minuscule amounts of money in leasehold, rents, whatever, and those who wanted to get on the land to become small farmers. And this political conflict sort of fueled politics in the 1860s, 1870s, and led to the Free Selection Acts in most of the colonies, which provided a framework in which those who wanted to be small farmers, small landholders, could take up that land, could have that land reclaimed from the squatters and made available to them. And particularly, of course, that was given more momentum after the gold rushes, in in Victoria in particular, that once the gold rushes had petered out, then all of these people were here who wanted then to achieve economic independence by accessing the land as small settlers. So what was the thinking behind the Free Selection Act? It was fuelled by dreams of economic independence, which was one of the major ideals of the 19th century, that in the New World, in places like Australia and New Zealand and the United States, that people, mainly men, who'd once been wage earners, who would have been condemned to wage work for their adult lives in Britain, that in the New World, they could access the land which would enable them to become economically independent and to avoid wage labour. That was the dream. Fueling this, of course, didn't always work out that way for numerous reasons. And how significant was that struggle? Because I'm imagining if you've got many of the squatters who'd had leased land quite cheaply across Australia and were making quite good livings, which I think they were from their agricultural pursuits, they must have been quite reluctant to give up their land. Oh, absolutely. And of course, the historiography on the Free Selection Acts is full of the strategies that squatters, pastoralists, they were mainly pastoralists, adopted to defend their land holdings. You know, they had a, had all sorts of tricks whereby they would select land in advance. The, the amount of land was limited that you could select, you know, like 640 acres. And so the squatters might make selections of crucial strategic pieces of land, you know, like alongside riverbanks or whatever. Or they would use relatives or pay dummy selectors to select for them. So, yes, it was both a sort of economic struggle, a struggle over the land, as well as a political struggle. By the time of Federation in 1901, it was clear that the push to get small farmers onto the land was starting to succeed. The economic statistics are fairly vague, but it was certainly sort of more than half of the population lived in rural areas. And the rural economy was seen to be the driver of economic wealth. I mean, if you look at something like railway policy at the time, you know, the railway was kind of the internet of the 19th century. Governments were funding railways largely to get product to ports and markets. So it really guided the way in which governments, colonial and then federation governments, thought about Australia. Then in the 20th century, there was a real political motivation to encourage a denser population in Australia's rural areas. And the best way to do that was to encourage farmer settlement. 
Now, either that was for returning servicemen after the First and Second World Wars, or it was more generally a whole raft of bits of legislation that had the de facto effect of encouraging smallholders. So cooperatives legislation, statutory marketing boards, single desk selling arrangements, all these mechanisms were attempting to create a level playing field so the small farmer could compete against the big farmer. People have disparagingly called it sort of rural socialism, I guess, and to some extent I can understand that. But it was part of a bigger motivation where governments saw the economic future of Australia being rural and leading on from that, how do we encourage a rural sector that generated wealth for a larger number of farmers and populated the inland? There was a sense in which I think for much of the 20th centuries, cities and city life were seen as being social bads. People were associating cities with slums and perhaps poor morals, and the idea of rural settlement was seen to be morally uplifting, I think. And so the idea of populating Australia with a, a class of small farmers was seen to be good for the nation. This was especially true at the end of World War I, when life on the land was seen as a way of both thanking and rehabilitating returning soldiers. It's a little known fact that some of Australia's iconic farming districts share a link with the bloody battlefields of World War I. Following the war, a soldier settlement scheme was introduced in each Australian state to help repatriate servicemen returning from overseas. The program saw the creation of around 23,000 farms nationwide across 9 million hectares. It grows directly out of the 19th century. That's why it's quite interesting, because it represents continuity over change and it represents faith over reality because you had the free selection decades in the 1860s, 1870s. That was followed by a scheme called closer settlement, which again, as the name implies, aimed to put on the land small farmers, often also, by the way, by the late 19th century, aided by state irrigation schemes, for example. Australia was different from the United States in one main way, and that is that in Australia, state governments provide an enormous economic support for helping the man on the land. Refrigerating depots, for example, railways. The governments in Australia put a huge amount of money into this vision of their economic future. So you had free selection, closer settlement, as it was called in the 1880s, 1890s, and then soldier settlement was simply a continuity of the older closer settlement schemes. And many people warned that it was foolish because the closer settlement schemes had already proven to be failures in many cases. There'd been a royal commission in Victoria into closer settlement and the reasons that people were failing on the land. But despite all of that, there was massive faith in the land as the source of economic prosperity, of rendering men independent, of rendering them healthy even, you know, after they returned wounded from the war. Men who'd been injured in the war, gassed or whatever, were put on the land, which required quite vigorous work. This photo album tells the story of a soldier settlement that, like so many, ultimately failed. They had to work damned hard. Times were tough then, and the soldier settlers struggled to make money. They simply weren't skilled enough to be farmers, and the blocks they were given were too small. 
So have we got any idea how many people actually took up this opportunity and and, and just how large the, the blocks they went on to were? Yes, thousands of people took up this opportunity across Australia from... It started while the war was still on, 1915-1916. They had small blocks, that was the point, and more than 50% failed. That is, they accumulated debts that were so extensive because they had to pay back the cost of the land as well as the cost of all the monies that had been advanced to them to work the land. And it made the soldier settlers themselves, not surprisingly, very bitter. You know, they felt in a way they'd been doubly betrayed or doubly exploited once by serving in the war and then secondly by being given land that they couldn't work. So it wasn't in general a very happy experience, which is not to say that some didn't survive. I mean, obviously some settlers who got good land and maybe who had experience and maybe who had a bit of capital of their own went on to develop successful farms. Despite the failure of the World War I scheme, at the end of World War II, the government again offered land to returning servicemen. By World War II, they had realised that, you know, it hadn't been a success and had analysed some of the weaknesses and they set about to make it a much more efficient, prosperous scheme, which it was comparatively. They allocated large blocks of land, they made sure that the land was in, you know, in suitable farming areas. They enabled more of the farms to be self-supporting. However, they were also, settlers were also lucky with regard to the markets onto which they sold their produce after World War II, much luckier than they'd been in the 20s and 30s because, of course, the other thing in the 20s and 30s was the depression that starts in the 1920s and goes through to the 1930s. So the international market dried up for many of their products. In World War II, they went into the 1950s and 1960s, which has probably been, was probably one of the most successful periods for small-scale agriculture in Australia. You're listening to Rear Vision on RN. I'm Annabel Quince. By the end of World War II and through the 1950s and 60s, agriculture and export earnings from agriculture boomed. Professor Ross Kingwell from the University of Western Australia. Well, it was a major source of export earnings. So we didn't have, in the, certainly in the 1950s, we didn't have the minerals and energy boom that began in the 1960s, 70s and continued well into the 21st century. So agriculture was the dominant export earner. We didn't have foreign student incomes flowing into Australia. Most of our income was based on either unprocessed or processed agricultural commodities. So it it was incredibly important economically, politically, socially. It was one of the jewels of Australia's economic crown in the 1950s and 60s. So what public policies, if any, did the federal government put in place to support this economic jewel? Linda Bottrell is Professor of Australian Public Policy at the University of Canberra. 
Well, I think there's two factors that to that. First of all, we have to remember that under the Constitution, agricultural policy actually rests with the states. So in order to get national policy in place, the Commonwealth Government needs to find a mechanism to negotiate with the states to actually implement that policy. So with things like the Rural Adjustment Scheme, that was done through grants under Section 96 of the Constitution. So there's a difficulty for the Commonwealth to intervene directly in agriculture. So that's that's the first point. But yes, there was a sense that it was was a government responding on a case-by-case basis. And by the 1950s, this was actually very deliberate. Blackjack McEwen, I think it was, said that he didn't see it as the role of government to impose policy on growers and on farmers, but to respond to what they wanted. So the country party saw itself very much as being there to do the bidding of its constituency. So some groups, for example, the wheat industry, had temporary wheat board arrangements during the First World War. And then we saw the establishment of the ongoing Australian Wheat Board as a statutory body after the Second World War. And that was in response to farmers' perception that middlemen in the industry were ripping them off. In other areas, there were responses to what was happening in manufacturing. So the push to increase manufacturing output in Australia led to the introduction of tariffs and other trade barriers to protect these infant industries. And that then led to a response by a lot of the export-oriented rural sector to push for compensatory tariffs. And that then led to the expression protection all round. So we started to see areas of agricultural policy or agricultural industries beginning to get support as compensation for the additional costs they were facing because of the protection being offered to the non-rural industries. There were schemes that facilitated the development of new land. There were also policies that subsidised the use of inputs. There was a superphosphate bounty. There was a a nitrogenous fertiliser subsidy. So the government policy in the 1960s was all about enhancing agricultural production. It was about growing the magnitude of commodities that were produced. It was about trying to facilitate the export of those commodities. And that was the economic engine that underpinned a lot of agriculture and the economy in general in the 1960s. So governments, in their wisdom, saw that agriculture was the underpinning of economic growth of the nation and they put in place a lot of policies to enhance agricultural production. So when does that start to change? Like when do we start to see those policies shifting and what was the rationale behind it? Interestingly, I think agricultural economists were the first people to challenge these policies. You might imagine agricultural economists would be supportive of the status quo. But in the 1960s, led by people like Ross Garner, for example, who in more recent times has been noted as an advisor of prime ministers on things like climate change. But in the 1960s and 1970s, he was one of a new brand of agricultural economists who did some modelling, did some sums, and were advising the government that essentially keeping all these mechanisms in place was costing the Australian consumer and the Australian citizen, I guess, more than what it would be if they were dismantled and we let the market play its tune. And so led by that agricultural economics advice, 
successive governments, most particularly the Whitlam government of the early 1970s, which deregulated some aspects of agriculture, and then certainly the Hawke governments of the 1980s, implemented a whole range of restructurings and that led to what we might call neoliberal market systems or free market systems becoming the norm in rural Australia. In the 1970s, we saw a series of rural adjustment schemes come in and they were aimed at helping the farm sector become more productive and adjust to changing market conditions. Because once the Industries Assistance Commission was in place, any industry being considered by the IAC was being considered in an economy-wide context. So they were looking at whether the support was beneficial to the whole economy, not just to the industry sector being considered. So there was a real mind shift. And the creation of the National Farmers Federation meant that the main industry association was also very free market in its orientation. It put out a statement in 1980 called Farm Focus, and this was under the Fraser government, obviously, put out a paper called Farm Focus in which they said basically that industries should be left to stand on their own, and that includes the farm sector. Because a lot of the farm groups could see that although the Industries Assistance Commission process was going to dismantle some of the supports around agriculture, they could also see huge advantages to their bottom line of the simultaneous reduction in supports for manufacturing inputs into their businesses. So they could see the potential for the price of tractors and tractor parts and so on to come down because the IAC was looking at these other industries. And I think they probably did the calculus that if everyone lost their support, actually agriculture would come out on top. And what's been some of the implications of that deregulation of the of agriculture? What has it meant in terms of, I guess, production, but also in terms of the kinds of agricultural farms we see in Australia today? Well, there's a lot of measures of success. Agricultural production in Australia, it goes up and down because of droughts, but it's never been higher. There are fewer people, nevertheless, working in agriculture than there were decades ago and certainly fewer farm enterprises. So if we measure the social metrics, there's fewer people involved in agriculture. If we measure some of the economic aspects, it's more successful than ever. And, of course, it has agriculture has certain multiplier effects through the rest of the economy as well that work in its favour. So if agriculture is successful, of course, that generates wealth for other parts of the economy as well. Now, in terms of perhaps the more interesting dynamic, which is what's that meant for the kind of companies or enterprises that do agriculture? Agriculture is still mainly owned through family-based businesses, but they are businesses. You know, they're not necessarily sole traders or, you know, guys on the back of a tractor, as it might have been in the 1950s. These are increasingly sophisticated and efficient businesses, but they tend to be family-owned. And I think there's a good reason for that, why agriculture has not moved in a wholly corporate direction, but retains elements of family ownership, yet within a corporatising logic. And that's because if you think of agriculture... You know, it's biological rhythms, it's climate, it's weather dependence means that family structures are are very well equipped to farm. You know, when rain comes or when climatic conditions change and you need to sow or you need to harvest, you can amass your family labour pretty quickly and readily. You can put in a call to your brother-in-law or whatever and you can get the job done. Um, If you're wholly within a corporate system, you've got to pay wage labourers and managing a labour force in unpredictable 
climatic and biological conditions can be tricky. So there's good, if you like, economic reasons why family-based enterprises are still the backbone of Australian farming. That said, those family-based enterprises are getting increasingly bigger and increasingly more sophisticated and increasingly dependent on state-of-the-art agro-technologies and financial software and the like. So when we talk about family farming in Australia, there's a certain truth of that in the sense that these are family businesses, but they're not like necessarily your mum and pop image of, you know, going down to the farm. These are increasingly family-owned, sophisticated businesses. What about corporate agriculture? I think the story of corporate agriculture in Australia is very mixed. I think there's been some success stories, but there's been a lot of not-so-successful stories out there. I'll give you an example. In the central west of New South Wales about a decade ago, there was a lot of consternation when a big foreign investor moved in, Middle Eastern-owned, and a lot of locals and, I guess, the rural community more generally were asking questions about what this big new corporate investor would mean for the region. Ten years later, that investor has moved out. They've not found a success in that niche. And those farms that they bought off, existing Australian farmers, large corp, large farmers in Australia, not small family guys, but large farms, they've been sold back to a different set of Australian-based owners. And there's lots of stories like that. Some foreign owners have been successful, but a lot have moved in and moved out. There tends to be a lot of publicity when a foreign owner moves in, less publicity when a foreign owner moves out. The other thing which is new, and we've never seen it quite before, is the use of managed funds. Macquarie Bank is well known in this sector, for example. They've set up agricultural funds that amass pension superannuation sources and put them into agriculture, buy up properties and then manage them on a whole of corporate basis. And so this is a new development. It's been quite prominent in Australia. The size of farms over the last 30 years has increased significantly so that now the total number of farms over that same period has declined by 40%. We now have many fewer farmers than we would have had 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. If you go back to the early 70s, we had over 180,000 farms. Now we're down to under 85,000 farms. So a huge reductions in farm number, great increases in farm size, but also great increase in the average wealth of a farm. The, the average farm now is a business for millionaires in the sense that the average net worth of a farm is well over $7 million. And there are some incredibly large farms. So 16% of farms now deliver about 75% of agricultural output. So there's a huge skew in that distribution. There are some large farms that have become remarkably large that they use suites of machinery to engage in crop and animal production. And so that has meant that the actual nature of farming has changed. Many fewer people work in agriculture, mechanisation, bulk handling has stripped a lot of employment out of agriculture, but it hasn't stripped profitability out of agriculture. Agricultural farms are among some of the most profitable businesses in Australia. The rates of return to capital are some of the highest among all sectors. Agriculture is typically about less than 5% of Australia's GDP now. 
The National Farmers Federation says that that understates its significance because of downstream industries, and that's a fair point to make. But it's certainly less than what it was, I mean, 100 years ago. It was large in the Australian economy, but more importantly, it was the driver of growth. When governments looked around and said, how can we get economic growth and higher incomes in Australia? Agriculture was the solution. I'm not sure that politicians are necessarily saying that anymore. They're perhaps looking at Australia's higher education sector, our innovation, entrepreneurship, the way that we might link into the digital economy. Agriculture's got a role in certainly those debates, but I'm not hearing many people say that the future of Australia, Australian wealth anyway, is dependent on agriculture. We're not saying agriculture is unimportant, but we're saying the country is a very different beast to what it was 100 years ago. Bill Pritchard, Professor of Human Geography at Sydney University. My other guests, Professor Ross Kingwall from the University of Western Australia. Melbourne University Professorial Fellow, Marilyn Lake. John Quiggan, Professor of Economics at the University of Queensland. And Linda Bottrell, Professor of Australian Public Policy at the University of Canberra. The sound engineer is Simon Branthwaite. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.